Hold up, hold up. Okay, okay. before we begin, quick programming note. As Christmas and New Year's are just around the corner, in fact, I thought for sure I saw the jolly old fat man himself the other day, until I realized it was just me in my red hoodie, desperately in need of a diet, reflected in a mirror, there will only be two more episodes this year. Oh, no, 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 no. please don't cry. Men really don't know what to do with a crying human. And then I'll be taking three weeks or so off to enjoy the season, my family, <sighs> more food. And then we'll pick it back up again in January of 2023. Secondly, you may have noticed that the last episode and this one are slightly pared down in size as compared to what has become my norm. That will also continue through the next couple episodes and may continue to some degree starting back up again next year. Wow, does it take a fair amount of time to research and write these things. And I've got some Christmassy things and churchy things that really need to be done or people are going to be unhappy. So as time permits, I'll do my best to do three segments per episode going forward, but at least for a while, it'll likely be more duplex episodes rather than the triplex. Thank you for your attention. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us. But rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. So some people speak words good, some people speak not so goodly, but we all have the right to speak. That is, unless you speak the wrong words in the wrong order, then uh, boom, canceled. And that almost seems wrong. Like there should be a law or something against just shutting people down for speaking words. On today's episode, you'll get a crash course on how not to be a journalist, and then we'll delve into our guaranteed rights and other fairy tales. <laughs> Yay! So, go take an aspirin, you're gonna need it, and put on a jacket. The black van should roll up at any time, and it's chilly out there, and I don't want you to catch your death. Now, in the words of a great man whom I can't remember the name of, here we go. Oh, we've got a fun one here today. So shortly I'll be covering the First Amendment to the Constitution in more depth. But this segment, as Providence would have it, is all about the First Amendment. And, uh, wow, it is a masterclass. So the First Amendment says this, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Typically, people will think of the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion when asked about the First Amendment, and those two are exactly what we're going to be discussing in this segment. Found on the New York Times, but I'm not paying for a subscription to their site, so republished on dnyuz.com, headline, The Next Anti-Abortion Tactic, Attacking the spread of information. The opening sentence pretty much says it all. Quote, With the dismantling of Roe v. Wade has come a push to crack down on speech and information about reproductive rights. Now all I have to say to that is, What's that over there? Run, 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 run. They's on to us, gang. It's Coitins for you, I tell you. Coitins. <laughs> 
Oh, I never thought they'd catch on. I mean, conservatives and the religious in this country have carefully crafted a narrative for 235 years now that we're pro-freedom. You know, pro-freedom of speech, pro-freedom of religion, even the speech and religion that we don't like, especially the speech and religion we don't like. As I've said many times, most of us on the right understand that we're not a theocracy, which is a good thing as we'd screw it up badly. So we exist under the longest, or one of the longest, however you count it, running constitutions in the history of the world. That document is what has led to freedom, liberty, prosperity, and the ability to fight and end wars and genocide, dramatically reduce hunger and starvation, and generally lift the globe out of poverty that had been the modus operandi for centuries. That was the narrative that we on the right have been carefully crafting for so long, so that when this day came, as the Founding Fathers predicted that Roe would be overturned one day, we could drop the hammer out of nowhere, never be suspected, and clamp down on speech and information. But the left is so clever, so sharp, they sniffed it out right away. Rats! So this article from December 3rd, just a few days ago, is an editorial on the New York Times, and the author is named Guest Essay, which is an odd name to be sure. Mr. or Ms. or I guess what, Mix or whatever essay should be on his or her, they's knees thanking God or Allah or Zeus or Darwin, whoever they's deity is, that the First Amendment granted them freedom of speech because, wow, this is a poorly researched agenda-only article. Or maybe it's not poorly researched. It may just be lies and spin. But let's get into this and let me show you the importance of researching what you're being fed. Because although this is a guest essay in the opinion section, do you seriously believe that most people even think about this being an opinion piece rather than fact? That's if they make it past the headline in the first place. So the premise is that now that we've been able to do away with Roe and abortion has been banned in more than a dozen states, quote, abortion opponents want to stoke confusion about the legality of not just having an abortion, but even of discussing the procedure. The ultimate goal seems to be ensuring that women are unclear about their options to obtain an abortion or contraception, in their home state or elsewhere. Okay, pause. First of all, when he, and I'm using the grammatically correct he, since the gender isn't known, when he says abortion is banned in more than a dozen states, it depends on what he means. You know, is it a standard dozen? Is it a baker's dozen? Because the number per the New York Times stands at uh, 13. You know, over a dozen, 13 states out of 50 that have banned abortion. And one of those is a six-week ban with all sorts of legal challenges being waged in most of the other states. So, eh, more than a dozen, but he's kind of dramatizing it for effect. Shocker. Next, he says that the, quote, ultimate goal seems to be, yes, I know, this is his opinion. And his opinion is that this must be the goal because it fits his agenda of trying to stoke fear and anger. But before we get too far out, he offers evidence that what he's claiming is in fact true. Well, his first piece of evidence, Your Honor, is, quote, In Nebraska, law enforcement obtained a warrant to search a teenager's private Facebook messages in which she told her mother of her urgent desire to end her pregnancy. 
The mother is now being prosecuted on charges of helping her daughter abort the pregnancy by giving advice about abortion pills. Okay, well, I mean, this sounds a little over the top. And what is going on over there, Nebraska? Now, he actually gives a link for this alleged fact, a link to an NPR story. I'll ignore that for reasons, and I'll look it up myself. So this story came out in early August of 2022, four months prior to the writing of his article. So you'd think the author would gather, I don't know, facts. Eh, you'd think that, but no, you'd be so very wrong. So I found the full write-up on the New York Post. It's a bit more involved than a mother trying to help her daughter by giving her advice about abortion pills. But keep in mind, the author's premise is that the right in Nebraska is trying to suppress info. So the right is persecuting the mom for speaking to her daughter about abortion pills. The brief summary of the story, the real story, the full story, if you will, is that the daughter, who turned 18 through all of this, was 23 weeks pregnant, three weeks past the 20-week limit in Nebraska, found later during discovery after the crime, was a statement by the daughter to her mother via Facebook that uh, she can't wait to get the thing out of her body. This was in response to the mother obtaining abortion pills and giving her daughter instructions on how to use them. So back in April, prior to the Roe v. Wade overturning, police got a tip that the daughter had given birth to a stillborn baby at a home in a bathtub. This birth was never reported, so the police investigated. They asked the daughter, who said that she did in fact have a miscarriage and her mom had put the fetus in a bag in the back of their van. They then, along with another man, buried the baby on his property. When the police dug up the remains, they found that attempts had been made to cremate or burn the newborn prior to the burying. This is when the police discovered the Facebook messages and all three parties were arrested. The charges were uh, performing an abortion at greater than 20 weeks, performing an abortion when not a licensed doctor, removing, concealing, abandoning a dead human body, concealing the death of another person, and false reporting. The mother and daughter have pleaded not guilty and are out on bail. The man charged only with attempting to conceal the death of another person, he pleaded no contest. So remember, the author's premise was that the mother was being persecuted for discussing abortion drugs with her daughter. It seems like maybe the author is a liar. Maybe I'm jumping the gun. This might have just been bad luck. His next piece of evidence was that, quote, proposed legislation in South Carolina would have made it unlawful to provide information about abortions. Okay, so this had to do with a proposed bill, S-1373, in South Carolina that was attempting to make abortion completely illegal, except in the case of, like, ectopic pregnancy and life-threatening situations. As part of this bill, section 44-41-860, it stated that it would be unlawful to knowingly aid, abet, or conspire to violate the law, which would have extended to assisting others via phone, internet, or other forms of communication regarding self-administered abortions, hosting, maintaining, and or providing access to an internet site that gives information to others how to obtain an abortion. That's the briefest summary I could give you of that section of the bill. So the provisions appear to be directed to those in South Carolina, not that if someone looked up an abortion service out of state that they'd be charged with a felony. 
South Carolina law can't stop others in other states from creating websites. This was specifically in South Carolina. And the bottom line, this bill went nowhere. It didn't even make it out of committee. And at that time, the South Carolina Senate was uh, one vote shy of a two-thirds Republican supermajority and two votes shy in the House of a two-thirds supermajority. So the fact that this died in committee kind of shoves against the narrative that the right is trying to squelch free speech. Uh, right? I mean, I'm right, right? Okay, that's that's two. That's that's bad luck. It's okay. Third, he's got a third. Third, quote, in September, the University of Idaho issued guidance that it might be illegal for employees to promote birth control or abortion. And? I, I don't even see the problem with this one, but okay, okay, I see. We, Go with his premise here. So looking at the actual story written about on USA Today, as well as many other locations, we find that a memo was sent out to employees of Idaho universities by the University of Idaho's general counsel that said that, quote, while university employees are performing their jobs, state law bars them from taking action for promoting abortion, providing abortions, giving counseling for having an abortion, dispensing emergency contraception except in the case of sexual assault, and more. End quote. It also said that the university shouldn't provide standard birth control, but could hand out condoms, you know, for STD purposes, and students could still get counseling on birth control through the student health departments. So it bans the employees from everything to do with abortion, which I gotta ask, what are the general staff and employees doing giving abortion advice in the first place? Aren't they supposed to do their jobs? Not freelance as abortion advocates? And the memo said they should not provide birth control, not that they were banned, that it was a mandated could not, a should not. This was a state college system's lawyers doing everything they could to protect the system just in case, until things were more clear. Doesn't sound like information was being banned, just don't be a state school and break the state's laws. All right, well, that's number three. Number four, next up uh, was, quote, in Texas, two abortion funds, groups that help people pay and travel for abortions, this year received deposition demand letters from people tied to anti-abortion lawmakers for information on anyone who has aided and abetted the procedure. Okay, well, the article the author links to is from February 2022, which, if I'm correct... February comes before June, right? Which is when Roe was overturned. So this has nothing to do with the recent ruling. This, again, is state law, which says a private citizen could sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion after six weeks. You may remember this. It was fairly controversial and unbelievably well-written. So there are two groups that do exactly this by design, and the lawyers want information from the leaders of these groups as to who has been breaking the law. Seems more like stopping lawbreakers, not stopping information, as this author would have us believe. Okay, not doing so good. Oh, for four, but wait, he's got one more. Maybe the fifth time is the charm. Quote, in Oklahoma, some library workers were warned about helping patrons find information about abortion or even uttering the word. In an email, the employees were told they could face a $10,000 fine, jail time, or even lose their jobs if they didn't comply. Parentheses, the library system later updated its guidance. End parentheses, end quote. 
Well, that's only partially true, okay? Apparently, this stems from an email between two Metropolitan Library System, or MLS, employees with a screenshot of some of the notes from someone else. The note basically stated that after Roe was overturned, their legal department reviewed the role of MLS employees with regard to the topic of abortion, finding the employees have no role with regard to the topic of abortion. So they should avoid speaking of abortion. They should not use library resources or their personal resources in the discharge of their professional duties to help someone search on how to obtain an abortion. Apparently, legal warned that there could be people coming in and testing them to try to catch them breaking the law. The problem is this was leaked out and overreacted to. The executive director of the MLS clarified this the next day and said that this was not an official memo sent by the library system. It was a leak of an incomplete set of notes. The actual legal advice was to come out within 48 hours of this leak, which was also in the notes that were clipped but was conveniently chopped out of the message. The actual position of the MLS is that librarians can explain what an abortion is. They can help look up the science of abortion. They can discuss the state and national laws. What they can't do in their professional capacity is offer their own advice or opinion about abortion or help someone break Oklahoma law. Again, this seems like the legal department's trying to step very carefully until more clarity is revealed, not a suppression of information as the author claims. So, I guess as the old saying goes, uh, five strikes and you're out, right? If only this author knew of the internet, where he could have researched these claims, maybe maybe he wouldn't look like the agenda-driven moron that, uh, that he currently does. But regardless, all of his evidence is nothing but bunk. But he still maintains that the right has just been chipping away at the freedom of speech, at the, at the same time trying to use the First Amendment to allow people the free exercise to practice their religious beliefs and refuse providing various abortion-related services. How dare they? I, I mean, am I, am I right? Where's Greta Thunberg? She, she knows how to say that. But then, but then, it gets worse. Oh, man. In the 1980s and 90s, quote, White evangelicals flooded into the anti-abortion movement, and some, frustrated with the pace of change, resorted to law-breaking, blockading clinics, vandalizing property, and even attacking doctors. Lawyers defending the protesters invoked freedom of speech. Okay, oh, it always comes back to those filthy whites, doesn't it? And I don't think any lawyer ever said vandalizing or attacking was free speech. Protesting, yeah, I mean, that's... That's actually freedom of speech and freedom to peaceably assemble. But literal attacks, assaults, vandalism, and violence, those aren't freedoms of speech, unless you're the correct demographic in the correct liberal-run hellhole of a city, then it's definitely freedom of speech to do really whatever acts of violence you want. Furthermore, is it only whites that are protesting baby murder? I feel as if it's not only... Only the whites. But if it is, seeing as though blacks are statistically more apt to kill their unborn, which is exactly what Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood wanted, the elimination of the blacks and other undesirables, wouldn't that go even further against the narrative that whites are just racist? We're literally trying to save the lives of black babies so they can grow up to be black adults, so they can have black babies and keep increasing their population, ultimately comprising a larger and larger percentage of the country as a whole. I mean, if we right-wing white breads are supposed to be super racist, 
it appears to me that there's a contest between how racist we are and how stupid we are, because wow, are we apparently doing it wrong. And of course, he has to bring up the relentless attacks, the constant threats and brutality that we on the right have enacted just without ceasing on abortion clinics ever since Roe. Just way too many count. The violent... Oh, wait, no. <laughs> no, it can and, and has been counted, in fact. So how violent have we on the right been? Well, let me preface this by saying violence isn't the answer, or specifically vigilante justice isn't the answer, hurts the cause and really doesn't do anything, and there isn't a sane conservative out there that believes any different. But how much violence have these baby murder mills endured? Well, since shortly after Roe, starting in 1977, a few years after Roe, as of June 2022, according to Forbes, you know, that right-wing bastion, there have been 11 murders, 42 bombings, 196 arsons, and 491 assaults. Like I said, I don't condone these things. They don't do anything but hurt the cause we're fighting for. But when you break it down into the 45-year time frame, that's one murder every four years, and just under one bombing, 4.3 arsons, and just under 11 assaults per year. Breaking it down further, there were three of the 11 murders in one incident in 2015. That was the last time someone was murdered, with the murder prior to that being in 2009, and the one prior to that being in 1998. You kind of get in the pattern here. As for arson, vandalism, or bombing, there were three fires set in 2022, one fire and two acts of vandalism in 21, a fire and a vandalism in 2020, etc., etc. And please keep in mind, today... Pretty much everything is classified as an assault. If you make any contact with just anyone, they could cry assault. And in some cases, contact isn't even necessary. My words are probably violence right now. So I guarantee that especially today, if a protester brushed shoulders with a baby murderer, that killer is probably crying assault immediately. So uh, a multitude of grains of salt should be ingested with these facts and figures and statistics and numbers. Conversely, since Roe was finally correctly overturned, there have been 77 documented acts of vandalism against pregnancy crisis centers and pro-life groups. So that's in six months, which when you equate that to a yearly basis, that's over 150 acts of vandalism annually. A pace that if it had been attacks on abortion mills, the federal government would have had dozens of suspects behind bars by now. But, but no, 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 they've got other things to do, I guess. They're very busy. So the author goes on to decry various lower and Supreme Court rulings that uphold the freedom to exercise your religion the way you see fit. This author really actually has no problem with the freedom of religion, as long as you practice it the way that you're told. He's very good at using dramatic language, twisting and spinning the truth to make it into what he needs it to be, assuming, correctly more often than not, that his statements will be taken at face value as statements of fact, rather than the twisted lies they are in actuality. I don't think we really need to go any farther in this article. The, the link is in the notes if you really like to finish it off. I also don't think we need to go into the theological aspect of lying or murder, or lying in order to commit murder. Those topics seem fairly clear, I think. Now, what, what I want to do is... What still shocks me, and it probably shouldn't, is that you and I know that this author knows that what he's saying is lies about what actually happened as well as when it happened, and yet the agenda trumps the truth. If you can't defend your position without lying, it's time to rethink your position. Or maybe this author can't see the lies. 
Maybe those of his ilk are so deluded that they literally can't see past their agenda. Do the words that are on the screen to them read differently than they do when we read them? We know that perception is reality. Is it possible that their consciences and minds are so deluded, so darkened, that what they read and ultimately perceive in an article or a legal brief or whatever is truly only what they're biased to see, a confirmation or belief bias of sorts? It has to be one or the other, right? Either people like this author search for events he can twist and spin to weave a fictitious tale based on a true story, or what he writes is literally what he saw in the articles that he read. Maybe this is along the lines of those that perished by the flood of Noah's day, that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continuously. They were so darkened in their minds, their reasoning that they only saw what they wanted to see. I, I don't know, it's speculation, right? Maybe I and we do this too. Maybe we only see what we want to see, to which I'd say, no, I don't think that's the case. But then again, wouldn't this author say the same thing? But this is where the true truth of the Bible and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit must guide our hearts and minds. The mind of the born-again, spirit-filled Christian is enlightened beyond the unsaved. We know that murdering the unborn is clearly horribly sinful. Although not stated directly in the Bible, this is easily inferred from what the Bible does say. Unfortunately, not everything is as clear as this, but I have a perfect guide that I admittedly don't listen to anywhere near as much as I should, opening my eyes and mind to the truth. The Christian should be able to read, watch, listen to the propaganda of the world and discern the truth. After all, God is the owner and we are the custodians of logic, reason, and truth. Now, I don't know if this author is a flat-out liar or in possession of a mind so darkened by sin that he's not able to see the truth, maybe both, but we, as the holders of truth, must call out the lies whenever we find them. We must strive to not be the headline-only readers, those that jump to conclusions, that cherry-pick what fits our agenda, strategically admitting what does not. The world is experiencing a truth deficit in both worldly and spiritual matters. And speaking the truth, if it's not the accepted version of so-called truth, is getting more and more dangerous to do. That doesn't absolve us of this responsibility. I know that we can't all be serious all the time. I'm not advocating for people to be me. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. You have no idea how many times I wish that I could have just been a simple mouth breather, a know-nothing non-thinker that, that not only doesn't know what's going on beyond my line of sight, but just doesn't care. I'll admit from time to time I'm a little envious of the clueless, the carefree. But I know that God hasn't called us to be unaware. I know that my job as a man, as a dad, as a church member, as a friend, as a son or a brother, as an uncle is to be on guard, to look out for what's going on so I can be ready, if nothing else, to help others with information, politically, socially, or theologically. I think I've said it before, but one of my drives is to be right about everything, all of the time. Okay, don't worry, I'm not deluded. I'm well aware that that's not possible. But that drives me to acquire knowledge. This, I believe, should be the drive for every Christian. And like I said, I wouldn't want anyone to follow in my footsteps exactly. It can be a torturous place to exist with the one thing that grounds me, in fact, the only thing that could ground me, a firm belief that God is real, he's on the throne, and he is sovereign in all things. But I firmly believe that the Christian should be aware of this world, socially, politically, and theologically, and each in his or her capacity should strive for increasing knowledge. If what I said is true, that the world is experiencing a severe truth shortage, the Christian not only has the duty and obligation to not let the world squeeze us into its mold, you know, just go along to get along, 
we have the opportunity to bring sparks of truth into a dark life. And as the gospel song from about 50 years ago said, it only takes a spark to get a fire going, and soon all those around can warm up in its glowing. See, each spark of truth begets another spark of truth. Each spark of truth increases the credibility of the truth speaker. And no matter where you start, social, political, or theological, the truth of the good news of the gospel will naturally and necessarily follow. So as you go about your day, even if only in one or two instances, read past the headline, look into the claims, research the truth, and proclaim it in whatever capacity you have. Tell a friend, tell a family member, write a post, snap a chat, insta a gram. Don't tick a talk though, filthy Chinese spyware. Start to speak the truth in your circle of influence. That's how we make our greatest strides both in the humanist socio-political realm and in the battle for the souls of the lost. One by one. Measure twice and cut once. Do it right the first time. If you don't have the time to do it right, what makes you think you'll have the time to do it over? These are the adages that we hear from time to time, and I think in general, most of us want to get things right the first time. I mean, there are those that don't care. They'll just do half a job or a poor job and shrug their shoulders when it's screwed up because they know that someone will fix it for them. Now, I don't get the impression that our founders were anything like that last group of people I mentioned. I also don't get the impression that they looked at the Constitution and said, that's probably good enough. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 20, which is also part two of our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Picking up where we left off last week, there were two basic factions with regard to a so-called Bill of Rights being added to the Constitution prior to it being sent to the states for ratification. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Notably, Washington and Madison were Federalists, just as a side note. The Federalists argued that the Constitution was clear on its own, in that it created a centralized government with very limited powers. It was quite obvious that those powers not granted to the government was the sandbox, if you will, that the 13 current and all future states had the rights and freedoms to play in to further perfect the tricky art and science of governing a populace. Any further list of specific rights would do nothing but put boundaries on the states and on the people. The Anti-Federalists looked up from their phones and asked, Dude, what are you smoking? I mean, in, you know, in a manner of speaking. The Anti-Federalists felt that there was too much ambiguity in the Constitution on its own, and a Bill of Rights was necessary in order to safeguard individual liberty. In the end, the Federalists won out, and the Constitution, sans a Bill of Rights, went to the states to be ratified, which it was. Now, the first election was held on December 15th, 1788 to January 10th, 1789, in which George Washington was elected as our first president and took office on March 4th, 1789. James Madison, now a member of the House of Representatives for the state of Virginia, saw that this topic was turning into a potential powder keg, which could lead to a revolt. In discussions with Thomas Jefferson, Madison, although still personally opposed to the idea, capitulated and ended up writing the very thing he felt was unnecessary. Now, most of us know our Bill of Rights to be the first ten amendments, but the first draft made by Madison, proposed on August 24th, contained 17 potential amendments. 
In that meeting and two subsequent meetings of the Congress on September 5th and then again on September 25th, four of those amendments were incorporated into the others, which left him with 13 amendments. Through votes and state ratification, we got down to the 10 that we know, or at least we know exists, even if we don't know them today. With regard to the three that didn't make the cut, the first article had to do with the number in the House of Representatives. We'll read it in a moment, but the proposal was that the House would have a minimum of 100 members and each congressional district should be limited to no more than 30,000 citizens. Once the House reached 200 members, the limit per district would be 50,000 citizens. I, I don't know. Can you imagine if that was true today? Per the last census, there are 210 million registered voters. Doing the math, we'd have 4,200 congressional districts with 4,200 representatives in the House. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger house. That's literally nearly 50% more people than the town I grew up in. The second article also didn't pass muster. This one had to do with the compensation of the Congress and when pay raises could be voted on. You're going to want to keep this one in mind for quite a while. We'll come back to this one eventually. The 16th article was the third that didn't make the final cut. This one read, quote, The powers delegated by the Constitution to the government of the United States shall be exercised as therein appropriated, so that the legislative shall never exercise the powers vested in the executive or judicial, nor the executive the powers vested in the legislative or judicial, nor the judicial the powers vested in the legislative or executive. Now, I mean, this seems like a no-brainer, and maybe that's why it didn't pass. I don't know. That's the point of having three distinct branches of government. But as we're seeing today, apparently nothing should be taken for granted. Unfortunately, this one didn't make it in. So now we know the controversy behind the Bill of Rights, and we know that there was opposition for a list of rights like this. Nevertheless, the 10 we know today were proposed officially on September 25th, 1789, and were finally ratified, completed, and made into law two years and 81 days later on December 15th, 1791. And now we're at the point that we should start our dive into the amendments to our Constitution. So we'll start where any sane person would start, with the middle one, and work our way to both ends. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not logical at all. That would drive me bonkers. Let's start with the first, like people who aren't serial killers would do. But before we do that, did you know that there's a preamble to the Bill of Rights? <laughs> me neither. Crazy, right? So this was a proclamation by the Congress at the time meeting in New York City. The preamble is made up of three short paragraphs where they first lay out why and then move to what. The first paragraph reads, quote, The conventions of a number of the states, having at the time of their adopting the Constitution, expressed a desire, in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added, and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government, will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution." Pretty self-explanatory, there was a desire expressed by various state representatives to have a specified list of rights and freedoms so as to keep the government honest and in check. Now, the second and third paragraphs move into what they're doing. Quote, Resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress, oh, oh how I've missed you, in Congress assembled, 
two-thirds of both houses concurring that the following articles be proposed to the legislatures of the several states as amendments to the Constitution of the United States, all or any of which articles, when ratified by three-fourths of the said legislatures, to be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the said Constitution, viz., Articles in addition to an amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America proposed by Congress and ratified by the legislatures of the several states pursuant to the fifth article of the original Constitution. So, uh, did you know that viz is short for a Latin word that's actually short for a conjunction of a Latin phrase that for our purposes means namely, just, just namely. There's a little piece of side trivia for you. Anyway, this was just laying out the constitutional process that was literally just ratified to amend the Constitution. It's kind of neat to see that this Constitution was just put in place. The first election was just held. The first Congress was just assembled. And the process that was set up was enacted immediately. And then we get into the articles proposed to the states. Now, the first two, as I said, were not ratified by the states when the list was sent out. I mentioned them already. I'll read the text here as written, just as an FYI, so you can tell your friends and family that, of course I've heard the originally proposed amendments that didn't pass. Can't even believe you'd imply that I'd never heard them, because I'm, I'm sure that conversation probably comes up way more than one would think it would. So the original article number one read, quote, after the first enumeration required by the first article of the Constitution, there shall be one representative for every 30,000 until the number shall amount to 100, after which the proportion shall be so regulated by Congress that there shall not be less than 100 representatives, nor less than one representative for every 40,000 persons, until the number of representatives shall amount to 200, after which the proportion shall be so regulated by Congress that there shall not be less than 200 representatives, nor more than one representative for every 50,000 persons. I don't know. I guess you could probably see why that one didn't pass. That's it's a little bit ridiculous when compared to the rest, at least in my opinion. And then the original article number two read, quote, no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. Like I said, keep that one in mind for uh, a number of weeks out. Now, with that out of the way, let's start to get uh, into what did pass. Article 3, or we'll start to call them as we know them today, Amendment Number 1. Let me ask you. Do you know how many rights are granted in the First Amendment? Now, if you are listening closely to the first segment today, you should be able to recall. So, if you guessed four, you'd be wrong. There are five. Five rights granted. Ah, ah, ah. Now, for the harder question, what are they? Uh-huh, there's that one. Right? Come on, come on. Yes? Yeah, you're stuck now, right? Yeah, well, okay. Let's read it and find out, shall we? Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, we could spend days on this one amendment. It has been used and abused so much, but let's not do that. Let's try to take a relatively simple, basic look at it, read it for what it says, take a look where we are today. 
The five rights granted are the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of the people to peaceably assemble, and the freedom to petition the government with our grievances. The freedom of religion. The bottom line is that the government is to butt out of religion. Now, there are limits. You can't be a religion that violates the life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness of others. So if your religion tells you to bomb something or someone or kill the infidels or something like that, well, maybe get a different religion. But beyond clear threats along those lines, we have the right to believe and exercise our beliefs per our belief system. Of course, the immediate context at the time was that they didn't want another Church of England scenario. Religion didn't have to stay out of government, despite what those that hate God want to claim, but they wanted the government to stay out of our religion. Now, we've seen the most recent test with regard to the religious exemptions to an untried, unproven, untested, misnamed vaccine, and although not one single person should have felt even the slightest bit of pressure to inject themselves with this chemical, the reality is that there were a large number of people that attempted to just throw a, uh, it's against my sincerely held beliefs out there, when everyone knows this guy has no sincerely held religious beliefs. That's a lie. At the same time, there were a large number of people that had legitimate religious arguments against this thing, and, and they were ignored and bullied for their objection to this garbage. I'll just say, this must be a never-forget type of situation. It will be for me. Anyway, did the government violate the Freedom of Religion Clause? Well, I believe so. I mean, they clearly prohibited the free exercise. That said, this clause has allowed the United States to be one of the most religiously free countries in the world. Now, according to U.S. news, apparently the U.S. is number eight of the most free. So who beat us? Well, according to them, the Netherlands, Canada, Canada. Canada, they have as number two. Have we seen what's gone on in Canada over the last couple of years? Okay, number three was the U.K., then Australia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. And then the United States. Okay, whatever. I don't care how they arrived at their results. I'd say that this may be wrong, but who am I to say, right? <sighs> Bottom line, the government is to keep its cold, icy fingers out of the realm of religion. They have no right to tell us what we have to believe or what we can't believe. Next, the freedom of speech. This one is probably even more abused. Everything from pornography to a crucifix in a jar of urine and much worse has been protected using this speech clause, broadening it out from speech to freedom of expression. The bottom line to protecting speech is that the only speech we should care about protecting is the speech that we disagree with, that we hate, that offends us. If offensive speech isn't protected, then no speech is protected. That said, the things they're protecting... <sighs> Well, where are we today? Well, we're in a mess, right? A lot of what's being protected under free speech has nothing to do with speech or expression at all. It's just degeneracy and perversion. We're not a theocracy, as I keep saying, but there is a definite slippery slope to protecting evil, misusing and abusing this clause in order to do so. Now, the crypt keeper, Nancy Pelosi, famously said a few years back that you can't cry wolf in a crowded theater. Now, now why you would cry wolf in a crowded theater, I, I have no idea. And why you would think crying wolf in a crowded theater would do anything but get you some odd looks, I'm not sure. What that relic was trying to say was that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. 
but yes, in fact, you can. The point of that saying is that your speech, again, doesn't have the right to deprive someone else of life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness. You can yell fire in a crowded theater, but if you incite a riot that kills someone, well, that speech isn't really protected. But what about so-called hate speech? What about misinformation? Yes, those are protected as well. What our government has been trying to do in recent history is remove the ability of the citizenry to think for themselves. They'll tell you what you can and can't say and can and can't think. They'll deem words and phrases and thoughts as hateful and illegal. But using racial slurs is protected. Complaining about your government is protected. Claiming that a specific medical treatment either works or doesn't work is protected. My hope is that as Elon Musk keeps releasing these so-called Twitter files, the lawsuits will start and the Supreme Court will reaffirm in no uncertain terms that the people have the right to speak. So as I said, the most important thing for you and I to remember regarding speech is that the only speech in need of protection is the speech that offends us personally, and that applies to every citizen of the United States. That said, I'd love to have a little clarification to the idea of expression, but even there, if we don't protect the freedom of others to express themselves, and we're talking about in some terrible ways, what will not be protected when the other side takes control? We're seeing this now, right? So I think some protections and clarifications need to be made, but overall, we have the right to speak and express ourselves without being persecuted by our government, or at least we're supposed to. Next, the freedom of the press. The press has long been called the fourth branch of government or the fourth estate. These two terms are not interchangeable. The fourth estate is framing the press in a position of power and influence, the other three estates being the church, the nobility, and the commoners. As the fourth branch of government, they are in an unofficial additional position of being a check on the three constitutional branches. A free press, the liaison between the people and the government, is critical to a free country. If one or more branches or factions within one or more branches is controlling the press, freedom is nothing but a myth. Unfortunately, this is where we find ourselves today. Whatever Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms claim they are, they are in part a form of the press. And it's becoming more and more clear that these platforms have been severely compromised. But let's ignore them and the clearly illegal influence a certain party in our government has enacted on them. The reality is, for decades, we may have had a free press at least from what we know, but again, a press that's severely compromised due to the refusal to honestly report the news, regardless of the story, regardless of who it helps or hurts, because of the influence of those with money and or power, and the blatant bias in the news organizations from top to bottom. And this is on the right and the left, more often seen on the left, though, I mean, admittedly. This is why freedom through social media platforms and the internet in general is more important now than ever before. There are forces out there that would prefer humans don't think. Like I said, just do as you're told. Be a good little drone and you'll get your nutrition pellet today. The internet in a free country, which the United States still is, is one of the biggest hindrances to enacting thought control. You see how much hatred a certain political party has for a certain person that believes so much in the threat of global climate change that he has an electric car company and is working on a way to get us to Mars when this planet finally starts to fail. Elon Musk is literally a Democrat's dream, but he wants speech to be free. 
He wants information to be reported freely without enforced bias. So he's literally Satan. So the press has been and is free in this country, but they're all working with built-in biases. The social media platforms, for the most part, are biased and compromised. The internet is about the only place you can really find information today. But you must be able to read, think, analyze, and discern for yourself. Believe it or not, not everything you read on the internet is true. The freedom of people to peaceably assemble. Eh, I mean, we could probably just scratch this one out, right? I mean, remember the mostly peaceful protests of the last few years? You know, mostly peacefully abusing people, murdering people, vandalizing, burning stores to the ground. You know, they were peacefully protesting. They were fine. But we must arrest, fine, jail, torture, and re-educate uh, and destroy anyone that was milling about in the people's house after being let in, carrying signs, saying things like excuse me and thank you and so on. And we definitely need to arrest grandma for being near a baby murder mill protesting you know the murdering yeah that grandma needs to be taken down and and they are she is they're they're being taken down as for petitioning the government with grievances okay we can do that there's even a website set up that goes directly to the government the amendment says nothing about what they must do with that petition, so uh, nothing at all, I guess, is an option. Of course, with the current slate of hand-picked degenerates in the government, I'm sure that they don't do nothing. They probably print out these petitions and use them in some sort of satanic, ritualistic human sacrifice or perverted child abuse situation. I could be wrong, but am I? Now, I won't say you shouldn't sign petitions or call your representative or voice your opinion in a town hall, for instance, but I will say that as of today, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for someone to care and do something about it. And once again, I mean this for those on the right and the left. So regarding the First Amendment, it's still there, and it still holds a great deal of power, although I would say that it's currently on the ropes along with the Constitution as a whole, it's been abused for a long time. It's being reinterpreted in almost real time as more and more people find ways to twist it in order to use it for their favorite form of perversion. But it's been around for nearly as long as the Constitution itself. It is written correctly and accurately, and it's defined exactly as needed. The problem isn't the amendment. The problem is the political rot that's twisting, perverting, and reinterpreting the amendment for their own devices. And that rot is because of the spiritual rot in this country, and the spiritual rot in this country is at least in part because it's allowed to exist in this country because of the First Amendment, both the literal interpretation and the twisted interpretations. When you live in a sin-cursed world, all laws, guidelines, and rules will eventually be ignored, eventually rewritten, eventually removed. So far, our Constitution and amendments are standing, albeit beaten and battered. How much longer will they stand? Well, there's only one being in existence that knows that for sure. And I'm not talking about George Soros or Klaus Schwab. And I'm definitely not talking about Joe Biden, as, as he doesn't even know where his pants are. And much like Biden's pants during his papal visit, we'll have to leave this here for now. So join me next time for the next episode of The American Genesis. Until next time... And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies 
your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.